All right, well, uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know we're working through a sermon series on the Old Testament book of Daniel. He was a prophet in the Old Testament. And though this book, this particular piece of scripture, was written in what we think 600 B.C., I think, I'm convinced, that it's actually one of the most relevant, one of the most applicable, one of the most timely things a modern person could ever read. Um, Daniel is a guidebook, okay? And that's the reason we picked it, the reason we're going through it. it. It's a guidebook to living in a religiously pluralistic and spiritually distracted world. Daniel and the Israelites, they were, they were plucked from their home and they were dropped into a foreign land in, in Babylon. And they were called to live a lifetime of faith, not only following God, but actually being a compelling witness to him for all of those they lived with to the watching world. And so are we. See, their story is our story, okay? We've already seen in the early chapters of this book that in order to thrive in our place in this valley, in order to thrive in our time in this modern world that we live in, uh, we, while we're spiritually away from home, we need like a survival kit, okay? And Daniel has shown us we need to trust in God who who is resolved to our eternal good. We need to listen for the God who reveals himself to us and and tells us a story that makes sense of our own story. And we need to worship the God who reigns over all things. See, Daniel's putting together this survival kit for us, and he's throwing throwing it at us from like 2,600 years ago, and it's one of the most relevant, timely things we can catch and open and apply to our own lives today. And as we peer into this guidebook, this survival kit, Again, this morning, we find something surprising there. I think it's surprising anyway. In order to survive uh, and even thrive in our lives today, in this place that's not our eternal home, in order to love those around us sacrificially and energetically and strategically, in order to be a faithful presence for our king in this world while we live on earth, we need to understand something. And the thing we need to understand, I think, is a little surprising. We need to understand that sin is insane, okay? Sin is insane. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word sin. It is a fascinating word because it's actually changed. The way people use the word sin has changed so much over the past decades, okay? So I Googled the word sinful recently. I wouldn't necessarily recommend this pastorally. I'm just saying I did it to kind of see... What's going on out there? Here's what's going on out there, okay? Sinful by Affliction is a women's clothing line that sells a women's mystery sinful handbag. I have no idea what that could even mean, but that's one of the top hits that came up on Google. A bakery in Canada named itself Sinful Desserts, okay? In fact, the vast majority of images that came up were of chocolate, right? Uh, on, on a real estate website, there was an article on the 10 most sinful cities in America. Move over, Las Vegas. There's a new capital of sin in America. We go Old Testament to find which cities best embody the seven deadly sins. Sin today, it's tongue-in-cheek, right? Sin is naughty or edgy or something that kind of adds a little spice to our otherwise bland lives. Now, Maybe you've been around the church long enough uh, to know that sin is more serious than what you choose for dessert, okay? Maybe you kind of have that intuitively in your mind. But I think that for most of us church people, me included, I'm a church person, right? I'm a pastor. Sin means something along the lines of the bad behavior 
that we find ourselves slipping into now and again. It's, it's lying, it's gossiping. We know we shouldn't do that, but it kind of slipped out. It's drinking a little too much at a party when we're out with friends. It's the stuff we know is wrong, but it happens here and there. We're all human. Here's the thing. Daniel 4 gives us a radically different view of sin. This is the understanding of the human heart that, that, that God says we need to grasp if we're going to faithfully, compellingly follow Jesus in a spiritually distracted world. We need to know deep in our bones that sin isn't just edgy. Sin isn't just a few things we slipped into. Sin's crazy. Sin is insane. The classic definition of insanity that I don't think is actually in any textbook definition of insanity, right? But the one we all know is that sin is, or insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. Now, um, on this definition, I have four children, and so my life is defined by insanity, okay? So those of you um, who have some kids at home understand this. I fit this description perfectly. I think maybe this time when I pick up the living room, it'll stay picked up for the next hour. No, no, it won't. Reality always strikes again, doesn't it? Um, and yet I continue, I have this voice in my mind saying, maybe this time, maybe this time. The same behavior over and over, expecting a different result. Maybe this time I walk into a dark room at night, I won't step on a Lego landmine and scream out loud, because they're, but no, reality always strikes again. If insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, it, it's believing you live in a world that doesn't actually exist, okay? It's trying to live outside of reality. And that's exactly how our passage describes sin this morning. Sin's trying to live outside of God's reality. And when we try to live this way, we don't become independent and strong. We don't grow in our humanity. We lose it. We don't flourish outside of God's reality. We become undone. And the story of King Nebuchadnezzar is a vivid illustration of this truth. But it's important not to miss that Daniel 4 is also a vivid illustration of the restorative and the transformative power of God's grace. Uh, From a God who doesn't abandon his people in insanity, but rescues us back to reality. Okay, back to humble worship, back to full humanity. In fact, that's where this chapter starts. Nebuchadnezzar is going to relate this story from his life. But before he tells us the story, he, he tells us what it's about. He kind of gives a banner, a heading at the beginning in the first three verses. So let's jump in there and look at how he describes the point of this chapter, verses 1 through 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. He's writing a letter to the nations. This is an open letter to the world. And this is what the most powerful man in the world at that time says in his open letter. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, if you've been following along in the book of Daniel you know that this declaration from a pagan king is actually the most surprising thing that we've come across so far. So in just the last chapter, Daniel 3, there were three men who were thrown into a fiery furnace and walked out unscathed. They didn't even smell like smoke. And this declaration is more amazing than that. Why? 
This is the man who went into God's city, Jerusalem, and conquered it. And he stole the treasures from God's temple as artifacts, as trinkets that he could bring back to his capital. He, he submitted God's people to a, an indoctrination program to de-God their hearts and their lives. All right? And then he built a 90-foot golden statue of himself and demanded everybody worship it. Who even builds a 90-foot golden statue of themselves? Who does that? Not the person who also says, how great are God's signs, right? How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So what changed for Nebuchadnezzar? What changed? What what caused his heart, this deep heart change, this restoration, this salvation, this total spiritual transformation? What changed in Nebuchadnezzar's life? For Nebuchadnezzar, the transformation begins when he finally understands his own sin, okay? So that's what we need to understand as well. We're going to look at this uh, for the rest of our time in two parts this morning, a descent into insanity and then a restoration into worship. So a descent into insanity. Let's pick up the story in verse 4. Remember, the first three verses were sort of his summary. After the fact, now he goes back and he tells us what happened to him. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. It's a bit of an understatement for him. I saw a dream that made me afraid. And as I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head, they alarmed me. All right, we're not going to go into the dream this time. This isn't the first dream Nebuchadnezzar had. Um, But uh, the cliff notes are this. A giant tree is cut down to a stump, and it freaks him out. And so he calls his dream master, Daniel, who also interpreted his dream in chapter 1, to interpret this dream for him now. And this is Daniel's interpretation in verse 24. O king, this dream is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that that heaven rules. Therefore, O king. So he's interpreted it, and now he's going to kind of step out of his role a little bit, go out on a limb and actually give counsel to the king. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So our story opens with King Nebuchadnezzar enjoying this empire that he built. Now, uh, by all accounts, what he had built was incredible. Even today, we call this city that he built, parts of it, one of the, one of the um, wonders of the ancient world, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He, uh, as he stood on one of the three palaces that he would have built in that city alone, he would have looked out and seen the hanging gardens of Babylon. Now, apparently, those hanging gardens were imported um, gardens from the mountainous region that his wife was from, so that when she looked out over an otherwise flat city, she would feel a little bit at home, okay? Happy anniversary, honey. No pressure this year, guys, when the anniversary comes around. Um, But amidst all the prosperity and all the wealth and all the power and the comfort, Nebuchadnezzar has a problem. But it's a problem he can't see. 
It's a problem so deep and invisible to his own eyes that God sends a warning in a dream, and then he sends a counselor in Daniel. And the message is simple. Break off your sins, okay? This is a dream. that It's a warning, and the message isn't judgment. It isn't wrath. This was all God's grace, okay? This was a word from a pleading friend. Please, change your course now. Okay, you're driving through the fog, you can't see where you're going, you're on cruise control, and you think you're going to a land of prosperity, but I'm here to tell you, there's a cliff ahead. Okay, this is, this is a loving, hard word from a friend who cares for Nebuchadnezzar. All of God's warnings to us in Scripture are the same. Paul wrote about this in Romans. He says, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that it's God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, right? It, the, these are hard words, but they're deeply kind words for Nebuchadnezzar. And the same is true for us in God's word. H- have you ever received a deeply hard word from a friend that ended up being a deeply kind word from a friend? You know what that's like? Have you ever offered something like that? Now, do you read God's word in the same way? Of course, there are hard things in the Bible. God's trying to pull us back into reality, okay? He's trying to get us out of our our world of fog, and there are going to be hard things about it. When you hear them, do you hear the kindness behind them and the grace and the mercy saying, come back home? It's a kindness meant to lead us to repentance. But Nebuchadnezzar mistook the patience of God for the impotence of God. He thought God's word wasn't true because it didn't happen right away how he thought it would. I don't see God doing anything, so he must not be there to do anything, was the logic. And the logic was so small. Nebuchadnezzar mistook the merciful delay of God's judgment as a sign that the warning could be safely ignored. He wasn't living in reality, and he continued to do what he'd always done, and God showed him how insane that is. Picking up in verse 28. All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. Again, 12 months after the warning, nothing had changed. Guess God's word isn't so trustworthy after all, would be the thought process, right? And the king answered and said, Is not this Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled this time. Against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men. He ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle feathers. The descriptions here are great. And his nails were like bird's claws. Okay? Nebuchadnezzar's sin made him insane. In his case, literally. Okay? Literally, he went out into the fields and started eating grass like an animal. Um, he, he started roaming the fields. His hair uh, was wild. His mind was unhitched. Living apart from God made, didn't make him greater, didn't make him stronger. It made him less fully human. What was the sin 
that was hidden so deep below the surface in Nebuchadnezzar's heart, that the thing he couldn't see that eventually undid him. It's what C.S. Lewis calls spiritual cancer. Okay, Lewis put it this way. There's one vice which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and which hardly any people, except some Christians, uh, ever imagine that they're guilty of themselves. There's no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault to which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. He's highlighting how blinding this is to ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. And the vice I'm talking about is pride. And the virtue opposite it is called humility. Pride is inherently competitive. It ruins relationships with other people. But the biggest problem about pride, the spiritual cancer part, is not how it causes us to relate to other people, but how it causes us to relate to God. The author in this chapter refers to God as the most high God six different times. Now, that's the first time that that phrase has showed up in the book of Daniel. And when these authors were writing the scriptures, they didn't have modern laptops, okay? They didn't have the MacBook Air to to highlight and bold and underline and italicize the point they wanted to get across. So how did they do it? Through repetition. And this phrase, this name for God, the most high God, shows up now in a tight cluster so that we can see that is the point, that is God's nature, that's who he is. The most high God is the true king and the owner of all things. It's his energy that animates all of life. It's his power that sustains all things. Okay, nothing would be held together without this God. It's his love that nourishes us. And it's his fame that is the purpose and the point of our lives. Psalm 127, we read, Unless the Lord builds the house, the builder labors in vain. Nothing happens without God. But here's Nebuchadnezzar claiming in verse 30, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence for the glory and my majesty? You see, pride is a heart that wants to control our own lives. It, it, we may believe in God, we may, we may say we're Christians, we may um, you know, claim him, but functionally, we're living as if God doesn't exist in our day-to-day lives. It's freedom on our terms, but it's not freedom. It's rebellion, okay? It, it, it's treason to the most high king. It's spiritual cancer. Another author I like to go to a lot, N.T. Wright, put it this way. When people continually and consistently refuse to worship God they progressively reflect his image less and less. Instead, they reflect the image of what they're worshiping. Since all, or sorry, since all else other than the true creator God is heading for death, this means we buy into a system of death. And thus, failure to worship the God revealed in Jesus leads by one's own choices to an eventual, an eventual erasing of that which makes us truly human. What's he saying? He's saying the same thing the psalmist says in 115. Their idols are silver and gold. They're the work of human hands, and those who make them become like them, and all who trust in them do also. See, Nebuchadnezzar worshipped his own fame, his majesty, his greatness, but the object of his worship was too small, and he became like what he worshipped. He became beast-like. When we worship whatever it is that we worship, and we all worship something, we become 
like what we worship. That's the principle here. When we worship money, when that's what our life's about, when we worship sex or fame or comfort or kids or family or even ministry, when that's the thing that gives meaning and direction and orientation to our lives, we will become like what we worship. And anything we worship besides the most high God is too small. It will make our life too small. And we weren't designed to live that small of a life. If it's anything less than the living God of creation, then um, we're living a life less than what we were designed to live. That's why sin is more than being naughty. It's more than being edgy. It's more than avoiding certain bad behaviors. Sin is rebelling against reality, okay? It's insane. If we live rebelling against reality long enough, we're going to lose, okay? We're going to lose. Nebuchadnezzar, he lost. This is a vivid illustration of sin. If sin is insanity, what's sanity? What's the good news? Enough talking about sin. What's the good news here? If sin is insanity, what is spiritual sanity? C.S. Lewis said it for us earlier. It's, it's humility, isn't it? Humility, though, is another one of those words that has sort of changed meaning over the years, or at least can have different meaning to different people. So if someone were to come up and tell you, you're a very humble person, how would you hear that? Would that be a compliment or not? It's hard to know. Churchill certainly didn't mean it as a compliment when he said of one of his political opponents, he is a humble man and he has a lot to be humble about, right? Um, That is one way that our world sees humility, that that we see pride as an overinflated self-esteem and ego. And humility is the opposite, means it's sort of this underinflated self-esteem. Like we just think we're worthless all the time and like we don't have a lot to be, uh, you know, proud of in our life. But here's the thing. In both cases, that's not true humility. That's a counterfeit humility. Because in both cases, whether we're saying, look how great I am, or look how awful I am, where's all the attention still directed? Still at us, right? It's still about ourselves. It turns out that biblical humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's re-entering reality with God. C.S. Lewis again In God, you come up against something which, in every respect, is immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and there know yourself as nothing in comparison, you don't know God at all. As long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you. Interestingly, it turns out the direction of Nebuchadnezzar's eyes in the story, the direction he looks, tells the story of his salvation. At the beginning of the story, Nebuchadnezzar is serving his empire from above, and he looks down on everything he sees, doesn't he? He is a man of pride. But look at this at the end. We'll, we'll close with these final words, picking up in verse 34. At the end of the day, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I lifted my eyes to heaven. And he finally looked up see what was above him. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High God. He finally names God truly. This is him re-entering reality. And he praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth 
and none can stay his hand. He's all-powerful. Or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, and splendor, it returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me, but it wasn't about me anymore. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his work. All his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Now, one pastor I was reading on this said, you know, it's hard to know if this king, this ancient Babylonian powerhouse, was actually converted or not. Like, I mean, is Nebuchadnezzar going to be in in heaven with us? Or was he a Christian? Uh, It's hard to tell from this distance. But there's some really intriguing hints that, yes, that that he really got it. And um, one of them is the order that we see this happen. See, in, in verse 34, we're told Nebuchadnezzar raised his eyes towards heaven and then his sanity was restored. The, the order is significant. The implication is that as he looked towards God in humility and dependence, with what little consciousness and volition he had left, he could not even think straight, but he looked up in hope. Have you ever been there? Can't even think straight in the fog, but you look up in hope. And this seems to have been the cause of his sanity being restored. This is how it always is with true salvation. This is how we survive and even thrive in a spiritually distracted world that we live in. It's while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us, not, not while we were you know, starting to pull it together or while we were really kind of making real progress or while we um, you know, started to show that we were worth saving. No, it's, it's while we were in the rebellion of insanity that Jesus comes down and saves us. Philippians 2, though Jesus was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see what he just did? See what God just did? Jesus humbles himself unto death because we refuse to, right? Because we refuse to live in reality, he comes here and he does it for us perfectly. He he makes us able to humbly serve him. It's the simple gospel and it's the survival kit for following Jesus in our world. Here's a beautifully counterintuitive truth of Christianity. You're not the most important person in your story. You're welcome. Uh, There is a king a most high God whose life your life is about. He reigns over you and everything else. And when that most high king came down in humility to live with us, he didn't come down to to kick the rebels out and cast us away. He came down to die in our place so that we can be reinvited into his family again, reinstated in his love. And not as slaves and as servants, but as his children as his sons and as his daughters. Sin makes you less than human. It's living outside of reality. Salvation, by God's grace, makes you truly human. A child of the living God, filled with the dynamic, transforming power of the Holy Spirit. You were designed to thrive in this world. Your life was not supposed to be little and small. It wasn't supposed to be reduced to something that you pick to worship. You were designed to be an heir of God's kingdom, 
to rule and to create in this world with him, in his king, to represent his kingdom to people, look up to Jesus and he will bring us back home to the real purpose and mission of our lives. Take your eyes off yourself and your accomplishments. Take your eyes off yourself and your failures. Start, stop comparing yourself with other people and look up to the most high God and he will transform you into humble worshipers and children of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word this morning from Daniel 4 and, and just the wild ride you took Nebuchadnezzar on. Um, I think some of us feel like we're on a wild ride too. But we trust you and we know you're in control and we know that you're good and gracious and loving and highly invested in our lives. You love us more than we can know. Help us see our sin for what it is, just craziness, trying to live apart from you. And help us look up to you and receive the love and the restoring grace that is always on offer. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.